Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to a weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Right Home. I'm Brian McCullough. Y'all know Dan Fromer, veteran tech journalist. We're going to do a WWDC preview here today. But before that, and actually for most of the episode, Dan has his own excellent newsletter called The New Consumer. Sign up for it in the show notes. Link to the free and paid editions there. Because this is the beat that Dan covers so well. Before we get into the WWDC discussion and the Apple stuff, we have a lengthy discussion of the whole consumer unicorn startup space that I don't think we cover enough on this show. Please enjoy this conversation with the great Dan Fromer. Like, uh, consumer startups are sort of outside the remit of tech meme, you know, because it's sort of like Gabe is always like, well, if it's not tech, uh, we're not going to cover it. And a lot of the direct-to-consumer stuff is is not tech. It's just consumer products. But um, in the interest of covering the startup scene in all of its guises, um, you've been writing a lot about some of these consumer unicorns, as they were. Um so let's let's start by talking about that. It, Harry's just got bought by um, what is it? Edgewell Personal Care uh, for one point three billion dollars. You noted that um, for the whole slate of big consumer unicorns, um, there haven't been a lot of these big purchases so far. Like it's been three years since Dollar Shave Club got taken out. Why, why do you think that is? It's interesting because they're not really. Most of them are not tech companies. Um, but they use technology in a way that most legacy consumer startups or just brands in general did not um, in, in kind of all facets of their business, in marketing, in, um, in research, in development of products, uh, in uh, di- you know, distribution and how they run their warehouses, in how they order their packaging. There's a lot of technology that goes into it. And I think I wonder if that's what has, especially the marketing component, because they rely so heavily on, especially at the beginning, like on Facebook and Instagram ads. I wonder if that's what has gotten the technology VCs so into it, because that's what you know. One of the kind of big questions is: should these companies be valued as technology companies or as like you know diaper companies right, or shaving right. companies? Um, and the difference is, is pretty profound. You know, you can have a a software a subscription software company that's valued at 30 times its revenue and a, a consumer packaged goods company that's valued at like three to five times its revenue. Um, so that's a big difference. And, uh, and that's where, you know, is interesting, you know, the, 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 the Silicon Valley VCs, even the many of the big name firms that were, you know, very typically invested in software and um, technology hardware, you know, sometime in the last five to 10 years, all of a sudden started writing checks to these 
kind of new consumer companies. There are a lot of there's a lot of jargon for these types of companies. I, I tend not to use any of it. Uh, I don't I don't find it valuable. So I'm not going to use any of it here either. Um, and I think perhaps they saw the direct to consumer model as something unique to the internet era and the internet consumer and therefore um you know and, and obviously the, the the growth of amazon and some of, and and maybe ebay and google as kind of um you know large commerce facilitators i think maybe maybe they thought that those companies would either be acquirers or you know would, would finance a lot of these companies um obviously haven't really seen much of that amazon has made some some acquisitions, but not nothing crazy. Uh, you know, the, the, probably the, the thing that Amazon bought is Twitch, right? And that's the thing that, that is not a much of a, a, a consumer product company. Well, they did buy um, what? What's the router company? Eero. Uh, uh, they did. Oh the, yeah, Eero. Uh, but that's Eero. more of a technology yeah, yeah, yeah. company, and that kind of fits into their broader platform. Strategy. Well, you know what? I, you know what? Maybe we should. Uh, we should clarify, like we're we're talking about, like the the Warby Parkers, the Caspers, Glossier, Away, um, and, and so what you're essentially saying is that all the 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 thing that differentiates them is maybe it's there in in every case it's like um, it's a it's a sector that has a lot of old established players and all that all that these companies tend to do is just come in with the best practices of the modern era in terms of launching lean and launching viral and social and things like that. And, and, and that's basically their differentiator. Pretty much. I mean, you know, in some cases the product is better and I think, and, you know, and, and obviously in some cases the, the market they're entering is just so corrupt and messed up. Like I think Warby Parker has been so fortunate and, and has executed so well, but they truly did inherit a really a market that was really dominated by these big old kind of not really great companies. So uh, a lot of them are not. And, and and Warby Parker came at it with a pretty decent product. Um, it's definitely not the highest end glasses you can buy. And you know if you look at a lot of these companies, they're not making actually the best product. Um, some of them are actually making really good products, but. A lot of them are just saying, hey, we're going to build new brands that are relevant to modern consumers, you know, probably typically a younger audience that that buys things differently because they spend more time on Instagram stories than they spend watching network television. Uh, I made that stat up, but it's definitely true for me. I right. assume it's true for, uh, true for a lot of people. Um, you know, and, and then the question is like, OK, is that enticing enough for tech VCs to actually get involved? And and some of them, a lot of them have, um, you know, and they found some early success with Dollar Shave Club, uh, which was, you know, the first billion dollar deal. And I, you know, I, the chart I posted in this story, uh, this one story we're talking about is free, so everyone can go look at it. But it was basically um, why, you know, why there have been so few billion dollar acquisitions for, for consumer brands. The chart I made is semi trolly where it's basically just, um, dollar shave club as the one acquisition. Um, and that was like two weeks before the Harry's deal happened. So I think that also got a lot of people excited, um, because the, the, the company that backed uh, dollar shave club initially is called science. And those, the, the people who founded science are, are, you know, one of them used to run MySpace, like they're, they're people who are in the Silicon Valley kind of upper echelon of, of personalities. So I think that may have also gotten a lot of VCs thinking, oh, why am I not 
investing in these companies? Should I be investing in these companies? Um, anyway, so long story short, not really technology companies, but have enough of a connection. And many of them have been founded by technology industry people that there's this weird overlap. Um, and that's where I think there's going to be a, an interesting disconnect. Uh, and initially, you know, there, there had only been $1 billion deal. Now there's a second one, though it has not closed and might not close. So we'll see if oh, that ever, I didn't know that. that. Yeah, it's not going to, they, they projected a closing time in, in like nine months. So, you know, a lot can go wrong or right in that period that would, that would change the the outcome. Um, and that's why it's such a risky deal for both sides because nine months in the future of, of Harry's is, you know, potentially another 30% growth and, nine months in the future of Edgewell is like, okay, we know that these two young guys are going to come and take over the company someday, maybe, but what happens in the meantime? Like, do we keep, do we keep pushing the story about these brands that we don't know is, is going to be the same story we're pushing in a year? Um, so anyway, so that, that's, that's a digression, but that's an interesting thing that, that, that I don't think got enough attention is the fact that that deal was announced, but it has not happened yet. And, you know, has not certainly has not closed. And a lot of things could happen between now and then that that would dictate uh, the outcome. Well, and you're specifically talking about the, the Harry's deal. Uh, Edgewell is the parent company of, of Schick razors or whatever. And, and so in that particular case, a lot of the writing about it was like, it was almost an aqua hire in the sense that the Edgewell wanted these two young guys to come in. And essentially like the idea was, is they're going to reinvent the company and reinvent how we do business for the 21st century. Right. That's probably like one of two or three main points for sure. Is that the, the, the you know, the two guys who, who created and who have been running Harry's are now going to take over this portfolio of legacy brands, including like banana boat and Schick and uh, you know, some other ones. Um, I think banana boat, maybe it's, it's one of those uh, some sunblock brands. Um, that's the, that was definitely a, a big part of it. The other big part of it is that Harry's wants to, Harry's figured out at some point, okay, well, we got to be more than just Harry's because we raised all this money and, you know, the razor market is, is pretty big and can be pretty good business, but is not, you know, is not the, uh, the, the, the only goal of this company anymore. Um, they, they kind of have this idea that they figured out a platform and a repeatable, playbook almost of creating brands. So they're, they're, they want to create a lot of brands and you, you know, you can see your interviews where they're like talking about pet care. Um, the second brand they started is called Flamingo and it's basically Harry's for women. Um, you know, slightly different product mix, but, uh, so the question is, can they repeat that, that, um, that model, you know, indefinitely with, with brands from other, uh, you know, other industries. And the answer is we don't know. Um, but perhaps they'll be able to do it more successfully with Edgewell's, uh, financing their R and D capabilities, their distribution relationships with drugstores. And cause Harry's Harry's it started as direct consumer, but eventually moved into Walmart and target, which are, you know, very big, uh, points of sale for them now, but they have not moved into, you know, 5,000 Walgreens and CVSs and that kind of stuff. So that, that, that's what, that was kind of part two of, of the deal. Um, and 
I don't, you know, whatever part three is, is probably not that interesting. Well, but. the, um, the, so the other thing that these all, uh, share sort of in their DNA, you just made me think of it is you used to come up with a product and then fight to get shelf space on Walmart and target and stuff like that. But so it is this sort of direct to consumer thing where, you know, a lot of them, it is subscriptions as a business model, but is it maybe, maybe this is the tech angle. Is it, the modern way to build a brand is, oh, I need new glasses. I'm going to go open my Warby Parker app on my phone, right? And maybe that's what a lot of these companies are seeing as well. And maybe that's what these acquirers are seeing is like, it's that new, it's that new distribution channel, that new way of doing business that these companies maybe can teach. I think that's where it started for sure. Uh, and maybe it's not so much, I'm going to open the Warby Parker app, but I'm going to hear about it on enough podcasts and I'm going to see enough Instagram ads and maybe I like the creative that they're making. So I'm going to follow them organically, um, that, that got the first wave of customers. But the truth is that as these companies have gotten bigger and as they've become more of them and as more of them have gotten bigger, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, it, it gets too expensive to keep acquiring new customers that way. This is something you hear them complaining about all the time. Mm. So, so they've had to go into different, different models. Um, Warby Parker has decided that it's going to become a, a giant retail chain. I think it's, you know, it's approaching a hundred stores now in, across the U S and Canada. And that is how it's decided to grow its business uh, to kind of hit the next level of growth. Uh, Harry's moved into target and, and Walmart and they did it differently and they actually did it very successfully. And one of the interesting things is if you actually go back and look at old Edgewell earnings calls, you'd see the CEO or the CFO kind of complimenting Harry's on how they've done this stuff way before, you know, before the deal was announced. Um, and what I've heard uh, and seen in these reports is basically that Harry's didn't just move into Target and Walmart and sell a bunch of razors. They actually got more people to buy razors at Target and Walmart than were buying razors before. They mm. grew the whole category because of, you know, because of what? Because of their brand, maybe because of the products, maybe because of the clever way that they were marketing uh, and, and, um, merchandising in the store, probably all those things. And, uh, and so that's kind of the goal is like, how can we, how can we use these brands and the, the storytelling? And, and by the way, some of it's just as simple as like the Harry's guys know how to set up an e-commerce website. That's way better than most big CPG companies can set up an e-commerce website. It's just going to work better. It's going to, because that's a, a kind of native skill of, of customer experience that that tends to be a lot easier when you're a startup. It's not easy, but it's definitely easier when you're a startup than when you're part of a huge company that requires eight, 80 different departments to sign off before you can switch CMS vendors. Well, is so for all of these uh, unicorn companies, is is the play to get acquired to to make enough noise that you get acquired by one of the legacy brands or, or companies in your space, or can like a, a Warby Parker and a Casper go public eventually? I think that's what we're going to see a lot of over the next two or three years. And in the first piece, I kind of address like why hasn't why haven't there been more of these deals? The answer is that the companies haven't needed to sell yet. Uh, there's still a lot of 
venture and late stage private equity financing that they can raise on the private markets. You just saw that with Away, right. uh, the travel company. They just raised, I don't know, like $150, $200 million or something like that. Um, and, uh, and let me pull that up here. Yeah. Um, from. Uh, <laughs> well. Uh, I, I I vouch for it. I read the, I read the piece, but I don't have it in front of me either. Yeah. Okay. A hundred million. Um, anyway, so th- there's money out there, but all these companies, especially the ones that have raised traditional venture capital, are on a ticking time horizon of you know around ten years, and um, and so they're going to have to either someone's going to have to buy out their first investors or they're going to have to go public or they're going to have to be acquired or they're going to have to get profitable and start paying out dividends or whatever it is. And so I think we'll see more motion there over the next couple of years than we have over the last couple for sure. Um, But there, you know, a lot of these companies, when they start getting into the multiple billion valuations, like there are not a ton of acquirers out there. So it looks like Warby Parker, and if you listen to the Warby Parker founders talk, they don't want to get bought. They certainly don't want to get bought by one of the big evil glasses companies, which, by the way, merged and are now trying to integrate themselves. Like, that's the last thing those guys want. They want to run this company for a long time. Um, but they're also, you know, they're special entrepreneurs, and they, uh, they they seem to actually really care about what they're doing as opposed to flipping a company um, so, and by the way, I think it'd be great to see some of them stay independent and, and, and they'll probably end up becoming, you know, I don't want to say holding companies, but many of them probably will end up owning multiple brands. Yeah. So certainly the, the trajectory that Harry's was on and, and I, could Harry's have realistically gone public in the next few years? Like I'd say there's, a, there was a chance, but it wasn't a huge it wasn't a huge likelihood that their next five brands would have been huge hits and, you know, propelled them to become a $10 billion independent uh, public company. I think that there's still a lot of risk in, in that model. So a way is one that seems to really want to stay independent. They, you know, they, they don't have a ton of, of options that I'm aware of, but what do I know? Um, Glossier is another one. And, and, and if these companies can, can build businesses in the multiple hundreds of millions of revenue on, on an annual basis, at a good growth rate and be profitable, then sure they can go public if they want to. Um, but most of them can't. And that's where there's a guy, um, who his name is Ryan Caldbeck, who I follow on Twitter, who's also done some, some really great podcasts. And if, if this sector interests you, you should be following him and you should be listening to his old podcast interviews. But he, he's talked a lot about, um, these, you know, this kind of growth of, of small brands or, or micro brands. He's the, he's the CEO of a company called circle up, which invests in small, uh, consumer brands. And, you know, the, as people's tastes become more fragmented and as more people, uh, kind of look for personalized options and everything from, you know, the flavor of ice cream they want to the toothpaste they use and the laundry detergent they use, whether it's different values that they have or different colors or flavors or, you know, different geographies or whatever it is. Um, 
it seems like there's going to be like the proportion of brands that are monster huge brands is going to decrease over time and that the portion of brands that are kind of small to medium sized brands will increase and therefore you know the, the holding company just looks different um but that changes the landscape for acquisitions too maybe you know if, if, if there's not really a possibility of becoming a a billion dollar or five billion dollar global brand no one's going to pay that money for you um so anyway i i won't profess to uh the expertise that he has in terms of this this concept but i think it's really interesting and i i see it i see it in my in my purchasing for sure when you go through airport security there's one line where the tsa agent checks your id and another line where a machine scans your bag the same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Uh, let's let's switch gears real quick to the piece that you did on Instacart. Um, your thesis was essentially: if Amazon is trying to build the iPhone of the grocery industry, Instacart is the Android. Just um, uh, elucidate on that on that point for us, real quick. What 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 are you trying to say there? Yeah, and I love this. Uh, one of the things I love about my this setup at the new consumer is that I can spend, you know, five days or whatever it was, three or four days, just reading and learning everything I can about one company, Instacart, and then, and then writing about it. Uh, yeah. Amazon is, is the vertically integrated, like big thing that is, that is trying to take over the grocery industry. They have four or five different ways of, of getting into it. They have Amazon fresh, they have Amazon 
Prime Now, they have Amazon Go stores, they bought Whole Foods. Um, they're really going to push to be, you know, the the brand that uh, that you order your groceries from. But if you look at the grocery industry, it's like eighty percent of it is still not Amazon, not not uh, Whole Walmart. Foods. Yeah, there's uh, you know th- this. There are these big and small local grocers that exist and are not going away anytime soon uh, for many different reasons, including the fact that they have all these points of presence all over the country that um, that need a, a technology platform to run delivery and pickup for. And, you know, Instacart is proving to be the one that through, you know, I, of course it's not perfect, but through like good to adequate technology and building this labor force and building these relationships with the grocers is kind of taking over. And much like, you know, Apple did not license out iOS, uh, but Android was available for every non-Apple handset company to use. It looks like for most of the big grocery chains and even the small ones, um, Instacart is, is becoming their, their kind of solution for that. Uh, right, because you can you can either decide to build out the back end yourself, or just flip a switch, turn on Instacart, and boom, you have this delivery solution uh, ready made for you. Exactly. I mean, it's it's obviously not that simple, but it's most of these companies are nowhere near capable of building any website, let alone you know a sophisticated ordering system. And what's interesting about Instacart is that sitting on top of thousands of stores, they can see the metadata of grocery of the grocery industry that no single store chain could ever see. And they can use that two ways. They can use actually three ways. They can use that to the stores. They could tell the store, hey, this product is selling really well at, you know, either your competitor or in New York. You should be aware of that. You might want to stock it at your store. They know a ton about the the consumer, so they could they could over time increasingly personalize your, you know, what you see on the ordering screen so that your kind of virtual walk around the store is different than everyone else's. But interestingly, they can also have this data and share it with the consumer packaged good brands, which have basically no data. You know, they get scanner data from, from Nielsen. They get some loyalty card data, maybe if the grocery chains want to share it. But if you're a huge CPG company, you basically don't know much about who your customers are, what they're buying, when they're buying your product, what they're buying it with. And Instacart is kind of the technology layer that will actually be the first ones that can that can accumulate and share that data. So that I find really interesting. The long term, it gets fuzzier, and of course, you know what's what's really the point of of trying to draw things out beyond beyond too long. You know, in in the ten to twenty year horizon, it certainly makes more sense for Instacart to eventually take over more of this operation if it's going to, you know, you know that that's at least one scenario where you could say it's going to be more profitable and more sustainable in the long term as Instacart becomes the the preferred brand of of online grocery shopping for them to start either introducing their own brands the way Amazon has or, you know, or or doing other things that that kind of put them even more in front of the, the grocery stores. But they've said, at least for the foreseeable future, they have no interest in doing that. They don't want to aggregate anything. They just want to be 
you know, good partners to the grocery stores. And really that like for the next 10 years or at least the next five years, like that seems to me like the most logical kind of path for both of those those industries and we'll see what happens after that you know maybe maybe kroger or one of the big chains will actually get really good at their own technology or maybe instacart will compete with them um and set up its own stores or or who knows but well actually i mean the the thing that your piece made me think was you know Instacart could eventually own the experience where this is this is the app I open when I need food, and um, I don't really care about which grocery store it comes from. It's almost like the long 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 term play is that grocers just become glorified fulfillment centers for Instacart, and Instacart actually owns the shopping experience itself. Yeah, that yes, that, that's one that's one plausible kind of future model. Um, but I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, and myself included, I love grocery shopping. It's probably my favorite kind of thing to do. Uh, I mean, not really, but like, I love it. I, I, I never want to not go grocery shopping and walk around the store and see what's new. And I know which exact store, I mean, living here in Paris too, there's like 20 stores within three blocks. I mean, I know which store I'm going to go get one thing from and which from another a little different back home in New York. But, um, I don't know. And that's, to me, one of the most interesting things from all this is like, all right, how does the grocery store change? If you're getting your dry goods and your staples on subscribe and save from whether it's Amazon, Walmart, or Instacart, or someone else, Thrive Market, how does the store change its kind of concept? Is it, uh, you know, are there more restaurants in the grocery store? Is it also a co-working space? Is it you know, this is where the Theranos clinics were coming into play too, right? <laughs> oh, we got to get got to get sick people in the store. That's how we're going to drive traffic these days. So, um, I, I don't I don't anticipate massive changes there over the next five five years. But I'm really curious to see, you know, what what the grocery store turns into over that time as well. Before I let you go, um, what are you uh, looking for at WWDC next week? Yeah, so Apple's. Big annual developer conference kicks off Monday. Um, I so this is where they unveil, you know, the latest iOS, the latest Mac OS, the latest Watch OS. Uh, I'm this year. I'm I'm kind of focusing my curiosity on uh, a small handful of things. iOS 13. I, I bought one of the new iPad Pros uh, last fall and. It, half the time, it's just the most incredible portable computer I've ever owned. It's so fast. The battery lasts forever. It's sleek. It's The screen is so gorgeous. But the other half the time, you just want to throw it through the window because the iOS 12 you know, iPad software it just feels like you're on training wheels uh, with, like, dirty glasses. It's just – it's. I, I really struggle with it, especially having been using a Mac for, I don't know, almost 30 years and really feeling super comfortable with – with the way Mac OS works. So allegedly iOS 13 is going to have some, you know, some more thoughtful things for the iPad. So I'd love to see that. Um, I'm also really curious to see how uh, Siri and the audio evolution continues. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a skeptic as to whether that's going to become the primary user interface for much of anything, but uh, it's interesting, and I would like you know it's now been I think over a year, maybe even two years since 
Apple hired away the AI guy from Google. So curious to see if there are any major kind of breakthroughs there on how we navigate uh, the world with our voice. And uh, and the Apple Watch. I, I've worn an Apple Watch every day since they launched, except one day where I left it at home and my arm felt crazy all day. Uh, and so seeing that kind of turn into a computer on your wrist that's more powerful has been really interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm just curious to see how that continues. You know, they, they've certainly focused more on fitness. Um, but who knows, you know, what, what sort of new things we'll get to see with that. And then AR is probably the, like, uh, and that's augmented reality is probably the one where that's kind of where things seem to be going, especially with Apple, you know, the, think of the next big hardware platform from Apple. It's probably AI, AR glasses, uh, so they say, uh, it's easy to imagine some really wacky and, and weird scenarios to use AR. Probably the most creative stuff is happening with Snapchat and Instagram filters right now. Uh, you know, imagine you're wearing glasses and every human you walk by has the Snapchat gender flip filter turned on. Like, all right, that's crazy. So, uh, you know, we're probably still a long ways away from glasses that really cover your whole field of vision and can do that sort of thing. But, uh, you start to see little, little pieces there and, and, and Apple is definitely way ahead on AR technology. So that, and that's the kind of thing that they showcase at WWDC. So those are the things I am going to be looking for. Oh, and also the Apple credit card. But, uh, the best part of course, is when they surprise with things that I was not anticipating, anticipating. So who knows if that'll happen or not. Real, real quick. Uh, I think you were at the last Apple event, the the services one, when you know Oprah's there and all that stuff. Um, yes. Just, just watching it, it was the weirdest Apple event I can remember. What was it like in the room? Um, it was funny because that that Steve Jobs Theater is kind of sneakily one of the best uh, movie theaters in the world. The screen and audio there are just the you know probably the, the best that money can buy. And so, <laughs> you know, when they would turn on a trailer or uh, they weren't showing many trailers, but when they would turn on a video or an audio thing, it was just so immersive. It was, it was really unexpected from, you know, no other tech keynote has a, has a sound system or, or a projector like that. So it was pretty cool. Uh, it was definitely one of those things where it, it felt like, especially that Hollywood segment really dragged on and, I'm of the camp where it's like, okay, this probably wasn't for me as a tech journalist. This probably was for Hollywood to show them how serious they are about their partnerships and, you know, really uh, highlighting their create their, their, that they're buying into their creative work and, and all that stuff. So probably not the target customer for that. Um, it, uh, yeah. And those events are always are always like full of micro micro anxiety and stress. And I, I was I flew in the night before and was flying out that afternoon. So it's never a, a, a relaxing and peaceful experience for me. But it was definitely a little strange. This is going to be more uh, to formula, I think. Never, you know, never say never. But WWDC tends to be pretty structured in terms of here's iOS, here's macOS, here's watchOS, here's tvOS. Uh, supposedly they'll be showing off or maybe teasing a new Mac Pro, but but there's a lot of stuff to get to, and they probably only have a little over two hours, so it it should probably flow 
faster and not have, you know, 40 minute Oprah uh, and, you know, other celebrity appearances, at least that I expect. <laughs>